So uh, from half of you, this is your post-Croy uh, update. And so it's now my pleasure to actually introduce our next speaker, who should need no introduction to this audience, even though he comes from San Diego. There's no wall around his office at this point, but there's threats of that. Um, is Dr. Chip Schooley, um, who is, uh, has a very long, distinguished career, both in infectious diseases and uh, HIV medicine. Um, where um, he, again, he's a professor of uh, medicine at um, University of California, San Diego. Uh, so it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Uh, Schooley, who will be giving us an update on CROI uh, and ending AIDS by 2030, as some um, individual remarked recently. Thanks very much, Steve. It's a uh, pleasure to be here today and uh, to be back in, in, I won't say San Francisco, this is almost San Francisco, but uh, thanks for coming across the bay, those of you who are in San Francisco, and for coming here, those who are on this side of the bay. It's, it's great to be back. Uh, this meeting um, is a, the whole day meeting is really an update on CROI, so I'm not going to try to uh, be comprehensive because many of the things that were presented at CROI uh, will be covered in other people's talks, and I'm rather today going to concentrate my comments on some of the uh, aspects of what were um, presented related to vaccine development because that really isn't covered in some of the other speakers' talks, uh, and to a topic that came up much to many of our surprises uh, when the Orange Man uh, gave his uh, State of the Union address and announced that we would be out of business by 2030. Uh, so I thought I would spend a little bit of time talking about some of the aspects of those assumptions and uh, to um, uh, uh, talk about uh, how feasible that is. So let's uh, start by saying a bit about the vaccine. You remember we've been working on this vaccine for a bit of time. Uh, the uh, initial uh, plan to have a vaccine and, and uh, uh, clinical uh, testing was 35 years ago, and uh, we still are working on it. Uh, the uh, <laughs> vaccine progress has been rather slow. The uh, main reason for this is it wasn't appreciated at the time uh, by the uh, speaker, Dr. Gallo, uh, how diverse uh, HIV was. If he had understood that, he probably wouldn't have reported the, uh, the discovery of HIV with the French virus uh, himself. But in any case, having said that, this is, this is not, I've got to stop, I'm sorry. Um, having said that, um, as we began to learn more about HIV's diversity, it became clear that this, uh, I'm sorry, what can I say? As, as we began to learn more and more about HIV's diversity, it became clear that compared to influenza that we struggle with every year in terms of whether they get the vaccine just right, uh, HIV is a major uh, problem in terms of its uh, diversity being able to take in all the strains one would have to take in to cover the uh, diversity of strains. And these are just the strains from the Democratic Republic of Congo in one year uh, compared to influenza for all of 1996. Now, having said that, we are making some progress in understanding how to get our arms around HIV. Uh, this is a, uh, from a very nice talk that Michelle Nissenswag gave during the opening session, uh, showing that uh, as we have begun to look, understand more and more about the antibody response to HIV, people are beginning to discover antibodies that are able to neutralize more effectively at lower concentrations a larger fraction of HIV isolates in the population. So. Uh, not too many years ago, uh, on the, um, well, this is not working, but on the dotted lines, you can see that most antibodies uh, were not able to neutralize HIV isolates uh, at concentrations less than, uh, the IC50 less than a microgram per milliliter. And you can see that over time, as better and better 
uh, monoclonals have come along, a larger fraction could be, um, could be, uh, thank you, um, could be neutralized uh, at, uh, at lower concentrations of antibodies. So now we have some antibodies that at, at relatively low concentrations will analyze, will uh, neutralize three quarters of the isolates out there. What we've also learned is that uh, these monoclonal antibodies, there's not a magic single spot that these antibodies are directed towards. There are multiple spots on the viral envelope that if appropriately bound, make it very difficult for the virus to replicate. And people have mapped these to multiple different areas on the viral envelope. This is the cell, the membrane of the virus. This is what the virus presents to the immune response. And you can see that each of these colored uh, uh, epitopes with its corresponding monoclonal antibody is a, le is a legitimate target uh, for uh, inducing an immune response that will um, neutralize a uh, variable fraction of viral isolates out there. If you look at people who are HIV infected over time, uh, gradually a certain percentage of people in a population infected will develop, uh, you can identify within their humoral immune response, antibodies that will broadly neutralize other people's viruses. This doesn't happen in the majority of people, and it takes a long time for it to occur. So after uh, a number of years, about 5% of people will have antibodies that are relatively broadly neutralizing uh, in their peripheral blood. And what we've learned is that one of the reasons for that is that these, uh, these um, quality epitopes are ones the virus is pretty assiduous at hiding. And it takes quite a, uh, a bit of, of uh, shots on, quite a number of shots on goal for this random process of B cell maturation to begin to make antibodies that will engage these key epitopes that will, that will be able to uh, take out a relatively large fraction of, viral, uh, of the viral population. And this shows you, for example, uh, what happens in patients who have antibodies that will neutralize a relatively small number of, of isolates and these people with broadly neutralizing antibodies. These are mutations in the germline of their uh, B cells, the portion of the, of the, um, of the uh, DNA encoding uh, antibodies. And you can see that uh, it takes lots and lots of mutations uh, in over time for people, these broadly neutralizing antibody uh, people, to develop the kinds of, of broad antibodies that will engage these hidden spots. And what, the other good news that was presented at this meeting is you can actually, uh, with appropriate mice, mouse species and a right sequence of immunogens, you can, by repetitively immunizing a mouse with a certain sequence of, of carefully selected envelope uh, um, antigens, you can get a mouse to do this. The problem is we can't get people to do this because the uh, genetic diversity of people is much greater uh, and because when we're thinking about a vaccine that's useful, if you think about how hard it is to get people to get um, a booster shot uh, when you're a kid in a, in a uh, place like the U.S., uh, I'm not really counting Berkeley or, or Boulder. I'm talking about uh, the rest of the world in the U.S. But if you're thinking about trying to, uh, to immunize an immunization scheme in a resource-limited setting in which you'd have to have a certain sequence of immunogens that people would have to be immunized for repetitively over months, uh, or years, uh, it's a very unlikely possibility, but at least it makes the point that our immune system is capable of making antibodies uh, that are able to neutralize multiple um, uh, viral isolates. 
Now, what do these uh, what do these monoclonal antibodies do in vivo? They, in fact, are uh, quite good at uh, depressing HIV RNA levels in the plasma when they are infused. And this just shows you kind of the this uh, these are uh, patients who are HIV infected, uh, not on any retroviral therapy, given an infusion of these monoclonal antibodies. You can see that uh, the HIV RNA levels decline for a period of time while the antibodies are circulating. And one of the more interesting parts of this presentation that Dr. Nussenswey gave uh, was uh, a, um, a um, uh, presentation of nine patients who were in a volunteer study in which they were uh, given three infusions of a cocktail of two monoclonal antibodies that together uh, suppressed virus better than uh, neither or one. Uh, while they were on therapy, they, the therapy was stopped. They were uh, placed uh, with their viral load suppressed. They were given a couple of infusions of these monoclonals to get the levels up. Then they were followed until they had a viral rebound and then put back on therapy. And you can see of these nine patients, um, two of them, uh, didn't need to have their, um, their uh, antiretroviral therapy restarted uh, out for uh, more than half a year. And what was different about these two people uh, are that these were people who started with uh, very low uh, levels of virus in the reservoir. They had been treated early in their, very early on after their primary infection. One had been on therapy for a very long period of time, another one for uh, only about four years. Uh, and uh, the viral load at the beginning of start of art was not that, uh, uh, there wasn't much to distinguish them from the rest of the population. Uh, there was uh, in their uh, HLA types, um, although there was one shared epitope, one couldn't make much of this. But what was interesting is that monoclonal antibodies, or antibodies in general, we know will engage other aspects of the immune response. They will present antigens to T cells. Uh, they uh, help antigen. They help antigens be, pro uh, be processed by monocytes. And these two particular patients, in the context of their monoclonal antibody treatment, actually saw big, uh, big uh, rises in their cellular immune responses, presumably being unleashed by the uh, by the immune response being tickled by appropriately presented antigen. So that uh, it at least raises the possibility that as we learn more about this, this might be this uh, broadly neutralizing monoclonal antibodies may also may be a probe for understanding how to develop an immune response and may tell us a bit more about what kinds of things we need to do for people to be able to control their uh, viral infections for, for prolonged periods of time. And the final thing I'd say about this is we know that uh, if you uh, have a disease that requires uh, antibody therapy, you have to get infused every several weeks. Uh, one can make modifications to the structure of, of, uh, of monoclonal antibodies so that their plasma half-lives are quite prolonged. And you can envision uh, these being used uh, in prevention, for example, an infusion that would last months and months uh, while we try to get out of the uh, mud uh, of the vaccine development process. So the summary uh, from, the, uh, from Croy in 2019 from the va vaccine perspective is we know a lot more than we did before about uh, how antigens can induce broadly neutralizing antibodies. We know that we as people have the capacity to do that, which means that theoretically with the right antigen and the right approach, uh, a vaccine will be able, might be able to do it at some point in time. We know that these antibodies are active in vivo and suppress viral replication. We right now still have no clue, though, in a practically uh, applicable way 
We have no clue about how to make an, an, uh, an, a, an antigen that will cause people to do this uh, in, a, um, uh, in, an, in the context of a, of a population-based vaccine uh, campaign, but we're a, a lot farther along than we were uh, a number of years ago uh, when we had no idea about how to develop an antibody that did more than neutralize laboratory isolates of virus. Let me turn now and, and talk a bit about ending the epidemic, uh, and this was triggered by uh, the uh, State of the Union uh, comment that uh, the HIV epidemic would be ended by 2030 uh, by uh, President Trump. This caught many of us who were uh, designing the program by surprise, and we decided that rather than to ignore it, we would invite Tony Fauci to the meeting to the opening session uh, to have him present to us the rationale for that, because he, he and Bob Redfield and a couple of others uh, had managed to get this uh, inserted into the State of the Union address, and although not everything that, he, that our president has promised has happened, um, we thought that at least by having him presented at the opening session, uh, some things would be nailed to the wall in front of us that might be harder to walk back, and that maybe some, some of the things that were promised would happen. So we invited uh, Tony Fauci to uh, talk about the background of this uh, and the rationale for having this come to us now. Now, before I get into that, what the president was not talking about was curing the virus. He was talking about suppressing AIDS in the population. And there was at Croy one more report of one more patient who is apparently cured of his HIV infection. And this patient, uh, now known as the London patient, um, is, I mean, <laughs> Uh, is, is very much like our previous patient uh, that was reported several years ago. He was a man who had uh, a hematologic malignancy, uh, who had been suppressed on antiretroviral therapy, uh, had uh, to be induced with a fairly uh, aggressive chemotherapeutic regimen, failed chemotherapy multiple times, finally uh, got listed for bone marrow transplant. They found a good donor uh, in terms of HLA match who also had the uh, Delta 32 deletion mutation, which makes his, uh, his uh, T cells difficult to infect by HIV. Uh, the patient had a uh, traditional uh, stem cell transplant with very complicated post-operative course with graft-versus-host disease, uh, reactivated reactivations of CMV and EBV. And over time, uh, if you look at his uh, course here, you can see that uh, he uh, was on, uh, on um, uh, antiretroviral therapy uh, for a um, period of time. It was finally stopped, and his viral load uh, uh, has not yet rebounded, uh, still being followed about uh, not quite three years out. So again, I think it's a nice proof of concept, uh, not something feasible to do, uh, but it does make the other one, uh, the previous case, it does confirm that this can happen at least more than once. This patient was quite similar in some ways to Timothy Brown, the, our previous patient. Uh, the, uh, uh, he, he was homozygous uh, for the, the regular CCR5. Tim Brown was heterozygous. Uh, the uh, patient had an R5 using virus, as did Tim Brown. Uh, hematologic malignancy, uh, one uh, stem cell transplant, did not need to be totally, get total body irradiation. Uh, he didn't get as intensely um, uh, conditioned as Tim Brown did. Uh, he had a little bit of graft-hosis disease as the previous one and had 100% donor take. So again, very similar in many ways to the previous case. 
Now to turn to the, uh, to the ending AIDS uh, part of this, um, of the Corey uh, meeting. Uh, this was a slide that Tony Fauci presented to kind of introduce his talk, uh, which was quite surprising uh, because it had the word treatment on it, uh, which is not something that he often, as often talks about as he might. Uh, and he actually presented this as the key uh, to uh, uh, controlling HIV, uh, controlling AIDS in our population uh, between now and 2030. Uh, he made the point that uh, we've learned a lot since, since 1981 in all of these areas, no question about it, uh, that uh, has contributed to us having the tools that I'll talk about today. But the key thing that we have today are effective antiretroviral uh, agents. Uh, everyone knows this list well. Uh, this is a, uh, gives you some idea about uh, how um, much more difficult it is now to keep track of all of these than it was when you had to discuss AZT or D4T and argued about which was the least toxic. Uh, now things are much better than they used to be. As these drugs have become available, uh, we've all seen benefits for our patient populations. We've always, until not too long ago, thought about these drugs as being things that mainly made people with HIV have longer lives and fewer complications of their disease. We've seen over time, the uh, natural history of the disease get better and better and better, uh, so that the average person today who's diagnosed with HIV at 20 years of age has a life expectancy of over 50 years, which is a big change from where we were not too many years ago uh, in these courses uh, here in San Francisco. But what's changed over the last several years uh, has been our understanding about how we might use these drugs to prevent uh, transmission of HIV, uh, in addition to helping people who uh, have HIV-associated morbidity. And the first inkling of this came from uh, Tom Quinn's study that uh, was really uh, a very nice example of the use of frozen samples that have been saved from a previous study. Uh, this was a study that was being done uh, in uh, the Rakai in uh, Africa, uh, in which uh, they were trying to determine whether or not uh, treating herpes virus infections would re reduce the risk of transmitting HIV to uh, sexual partners who were not yet infected from a known uh, HIV syrup positive partner. And so Tom uh, re realized that these, uh, when the study had, uh, did not show that, the samples were kept, and Tom a couple of years later realized these samples were in the freezer, and people in the meantime had figured out how to measure HIV RNA levels in stored samples. And he went back and looked at the baseline sample in the infected partner and found that if you looked at the likelihood of transmitting virus uh, to your partner, the likelihood was zero uh, if virus was not detected and was clearly related uh, to the level of virus in the bloodstream, regardless of whether you were looking at male to female or female to male transmission. This study was really quite uh, an important study, conceptually. Uh, it confused the New England Journal editor. She thought this was a prospective study and thought it had been uh, unethical to expose people to this and took a while to help her understand that that was not the case. Um, but this, this undetectable uh, is non-transmittable is something that was a major theme of CROI. Now, there are two different ways to think about using uh, HIV antiretroviral drugs to treat patients. One is to, uh, if you have an infected patient, an uninfected potential partner, one is to treat the infected partner uh, and therefore protect the uninfected partner. And uh, this um, uh, has been 
something that was first modeled uh, in a number of papers that came out four or five years after Tom's um, um, uh, uh, Tom's uh, presentation uh, of the uh, data, and more and more calls to uh, this. Uh, this is from uh, Tony Fauci's uh, presentation. He did mislabel it. Actually, was a joint study of the ACDG and HPTN, uh, the HPTN. But this study is the one that has been uh, heralded as the um, as the turning point in understanding, uh, rigorously proving that HIV um, transmission is blocked if someone's HIV RNA levels are suppressed. And here in San Francisco, you've led the way uh, with showing that as more and more people who are HIV infected in the population are suppressed uh, in terms of HIV RNA levels. Uh, this is population-based uh, modeling in which you essentially uh, take the number of HIV-infected people, look at the average amount of suppression, and calculate a community viral load. As more and more suppression has occurred at the community level, fewer and fewer people have acquired the virus. Uh, this was uh, the early uh, San Francisco history and more recently uh, shown uh, here. You can see that this has continued over the last decade to the point now that the number of new infections in San Francisco while still too many, uh, is substantially diminished uh, with the advent of antiretroviral drugs. Now, this is not just uh, treating the uninfected partner. This is also PrEP, which we will turn our attention to now. Now, this is also true at, a, at an international level. These are data from Zimbabwe, Malawi, and Zambia. Uh, and in the international setting, uh, this has, uh, I think, uh, been particularly gratifying, and it occurs for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, is infected people are less likely to transmit if they're suppressed. The other is, if you might be infected, you have a, ration, you have a reason to be tested yourself if you know that you can be treated. So access to antiretroviral agents uh, in these countries uh, has been a real key to decreasing the number of new cases. The other philosophical approach to using drugs for prevention uh, is to treat the uninfected person and prevent that person from becoming infected, uh, even if the partner is infected. And again, you'll hear more about PrEP uh, in this session today in a very nice case-based series of discussions. Ed Corois here on Hillier gave a very nice uh, summary of PrEP. If you want to see it, it, you can stream it online. But she summarized the fact that uh, there were, uh, there have been seven studies now that have been completed. PrEP seems to work in men. It doesn't always seem to work in women. But the problem in women seems to be, in some of these studies, uh, adherence has been one of the things that has been challenging uh, in, the, uh, in, the, um, in the way the studies were designed. And she also pointed out that the delpivirine ring uh, seems to have uh, some impact, in, particularly in uh, older women, by older being over 21. Uh, and there's a lot going on now with injectable and longer-acting oral agents that will make PrEP something that will be easier and easier to do, as you'll hear later. So this uh, approach uh, of using drugs to uh, treat the infected people and to prevent infection to other people uh, is uh, one of the key aspects of getting uh, from where we are today, where not everyone is diagnosed, to a point where we can respond rapidly to public health recognition of new clusters of infection and prevent new infections. Now, if that's all here, what does that mean? It means we actually can do this if we have the will to do it, but what are the barriers to getting from here to there uh, in, um, in the, um, uh, between now and 2030? And to, to uh, Dr. Fauci's credit, he actually did make the point that um, this is ours to lose. And the two ways that we can lose this 
are not to follow the science, uh, and we often find ourselves not following science uh, in our society these days, and also to, make, uh, to have mismatches between where we put the resources and where the threats are. Uh, right after this occurred, uh, the uh, new budget was, uh, was presented uh, to uh, our, uh, our nation to make a better America. And uh, the good news was that it uh, put uh, $291 million in this ending AIDS initiative. And some of this was going to go to the CDC and local health departments to augment uh, prevention programs, some to the Ryan White program, uh, what I didn't get into today but I think is really important to emphasize. Uh, in these days of, uh, of funding decisions. Uh, there have been a number of very good studies showing that uh, patients enrolled in Ryan White programs have much better viral suppression than people in the general population. Some of the best work on this has come from North Carolina and Virginia looking at the, uh, the Ryan White programs. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, new uh, budget said yes to needle exchange. The negatives, however, uh, were also important, and that is that um, PEPFAR would be cut by three times as much as would be added uh, to the domestic budget. So what essentially is happening here is money for HIV services is being reduced by about a billion dollars, uh, with some of it shuffled from overseas to, uh, to the U.S. Now, we all know that we are not the only country that has a problem with HIV, and when you look at uh, the global map, in fact, uh, there are uh, parts of the world where HIV, uh, particularly sub-Saharan Africa, is an even bigger problem. And the, the morality of pulling uh, support for that notwithstanding, uh, we know that, as has already been said, walls don't prevent uh, the transmission of infectious diseases. This was a picture taken in Calexico, Mex uh, uh, California, just before Trump's visit earlier this week. Uh, I was in Mexico City. The Mexicans like this picture quite a bit. Uh, but the, the real point here is that we've seen over and over again that uh, we can't treat ourselves like an island, and while this uh, initiative is welcome in the U.S., ignoring things elsewhere uh, won't get us to our goal. The other cuts that were, pro were proposed in this budget were massive cuts to the NIH budget. The reason we have the tools that we have are because of medical research. The reason that Peter, has, Peter Hong had, uh, had something to talk about earlier was because of uh, the investments at the NIH. And finally, uh, the new budget uh, at the same time was making major negative changes to the healthcare system in general. And we can't get to people who are HIV infected or at risk for HIV infection if we don't have a healthcare system that works. There are cuts to Medicare, uh, to Medicaid and the ACA. Medicaid expansion was going to be reversed. Medicare would be cut. And then two weeks ago, the administration uh, decided to no longer uh, restrict its, um, its support uh, for the, um, uh, uh, over, uh, the overturned Obamacare uh, in a Texas courtroom to declare the whole law invalid. So um, even though the initiative tools are present, uh, the direction of the uh, administration is not in, that, in the right direction. And then to get to the area of mismatch, if you look at where the uh, HIV transmissions are highest, uh, HIV is, uh, the transmissions have moved from the fringes of our country, um, the, uh, as most people call California, uh, to, the, uh, to the center of the country. Uh, and uh, these are the areas that are plagued most by, by poverty, by uh, deficits in education, and by less, ab uh, less access to health care. So we have a big mismatch in our country in terms of having the resources where that we need to have them 
to deal with the expanding epidemic. So what can we do to end the AIDS epidemic? I think we're, up, we're here today for that reason. That's what we do every day, and we should continue to do what we're doing to uh, make uh, antiretroviral therapy available to people, to make sure that the people we're treating are getting, effectively, getting it effectively administered, uh, to try to advocate for and, and provide PrEP as needed. We need to invest in public health. Uh, we need to invest in research, and I would encourage everyone to vote. So thanks very much, and I'd be happy to stop at this point. Thank you. So we're going to go ahead and field some questions. I will urge the audience to resist specific questions about prep regimens and situations and timing because we'll be covering that in great detail uh, a little bit later as the, later, this morning, later this morning our HIV cases will also talk about when to start treatment for HIV, which will address some of the specifics of that. So if we can keep our questions sort of relevant to what we've heard um, this morning, um, I think that would be uh, most productive. I guess the first question I would have is that, you know, we've seen lots of fits and starts in terms of vaccine, all kinds of things happen. So based on what you, and even uh, harvesting, you know, our patients' um, uh, CD4 cells or, or stem cells and trying to modify them in labs and reinfusing them. So we've seen some attempts. Uh, what can we expect to tell our patients in terms of timelines, do you have any idea? Is that a silly question? Uh, yes, no, <laughs> no, um, it's not. I mean, I think one of the things that is important to emphasize is right now this is a line of research. It's not an area for therapeutics. Uh, we um, uh, need to understand this to, uh, to understand what the goal line should be uh, in terms of vaccine design. And there are going to be clinical trials uh, trying to help uh, us see as these antibodies and other immune manipulations get better, what impact they have uh, in people who are HIV infected. It's part of the concept of a so-called functional cure. And so if you have patients who are interested, I would encourage them to uh, consider being in, uh, engaged in trials at Stanford or UCSF and other places, because the trials are really well uh, orchestrated, well done, uh, quite safe. Uh, and or the, the way we make progress. But it's going to be uh, a long time, I think, before we can go down and order up an antibody uh, and um, turn the virus off for months to years at a time. So I think from your presentation said that about 10% of patients who are on long-term suppression do develop sort of broadly neutralizing antibodies. Is there any analysis available? Are there people who we might be able to entertain any other markers that we might be able to entertain stopping HIV treatment or referring to a study uh, where they would stop it in a monitored way? Um, the, uh, the, you know, there, the anecdotes of the long-term um, uh, ongoing suppression are two patients out of nine, and that's a large, small number to make generalizations from. Those two that were noted were people who started early in, in treatment uh, on, um, on antiretroviral therapy suppressed for a prolonged period of time. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's hard to extrapolate that to the general population. Uh, it's easy to measure uh, neutralizing activity uh, against a panel of antibody, of a panel of uh, viruses if you have a mechanized lab that does it. And, uh, you know, there are studies in which people are doing that, but it's not yet ready for prime time uh, to just try and practice because we don't yet... Uh, you know, these were highly selected patients. These are patients who, first of all, had broadly neutralizing antibodies, so that's 3 to 5% of the population. 
Uh, and of those, only two of nine suppressed for longer than the length of time the antibodies were circulating. So it's, um, it's not something you can count on uh, in somebody suppressed for a long period of time. So I want to try to maybe separate the HIV vaccine into two categories. One obviously is for prevention, the other is for treatment, people who are already infected. And so I guess the question is, given the two parts, uh, what's the level of interest at NIH, you know, in developing these strategies, particularly given budgetary concerns? I mean, that $241 million or whatever it was isn't going to go very far. Um, and certainly the, the Ryan White uh, care is important people in care but doesn't have any prevention um, aspect to it because only can treat, treat people who are, see people who are already infected. Well, the, the level of uh, interest at the NIH in AIDS vaccines has been substantial. I mean, uh, some of us would say uh, super substantial. Um, and um, so I don't think there's a limitation in money at the NIH for AIDS vaccine research. Uh, it takes time uh, to uh, move from uh, in, uh, to uh, detailed immunologic observations um, in a laboratory setting to larger scale clinical trials. And I think we've been too fast to jump the gun sometimes and go into these large scale trials with what we don't yet know. I think we need to continue to uh, probe at the immune response and get better antigens to better understand uh, uh, whether or not um, therapeutic vaccination is, uh, is uh, possible. Um, I was engaged in one of the early uh, randomized trials and if you have enough statisticians you can show a a small delay in the rebound of HIV RNA. So we aren't yet smart enough to really do what uh, we need to do to the immune response to help it get control of HIV in most people. Um, is it possible down the road we'll be able to do that? I think it is possible, but we're going to have to understand, I think, how to engage the entire immune response, not just a single arm like cellular CTLs or, uh, or uh, neutralizing antibodies, as you saw in those two patients. They uh, had enough uh, going on that several arms of the immune response were tweaked uh, with this uh, intervention with monoclonals. Maybe just focusing on the Delta 32 deletion. I mean, there's some attempts to essentially do gene therapy, reinfusing depleted uh, T cells back into the host. At least the last I saw, which was a little while ago, at least there was some evidence that, that those uh, lines persisted at a small percentage um, in patients who received that. Is there ongoing work in that regard regarding you know, Delta 32? There's quite a bit of work going on with Delta 32 and other uh, genetic therapies as part of the CURE agenda. Uh, the, the study you're referring to is a very nice one in which the uh, Delta 32 uh, cells were removed from a patient. Uh, they were treated with a, um, uh, an RNA uh, uh, cleavage device, basically, that was able to uh, to cause uh, a fraction of those cells to not express Delta 32. You can put those cells back into a patient, and those sh cells were shown to live a lot longer than the ones that were not de uh, Delta 32 uh, manipulated, i.e., they were resistant to new HIV infection. Uh, I think the practical aspect of it is going to require us to find a vehicle in which you can infuse a vector of some sort uh, with, uh, and we're getting better and better at, at being able to get vectors uh, that will excise specific segments of, of DNA uh, in target cells uh, into people who are infected and to do this in vivo. Um, there are other approaches that people are using these genetic scissors to go after the HIV sequences themselves in people. So I think these kinds of studies are ones that are going to be very interesting to follow from the standpoint of, of cure and are ones that we really should follow uh, to, the, to the end of um, uh, our scientific um, capabilities because 
even if we can't do HIV with this, what we're learning from this is going to be applied to a lot of other areas of medicine. Uh, and with HIV, we can measure what we're doing in real time, and I think it's a very, a very worthy area of research. So we have a sort of complicated question with multiple parts, and so maybe I'll let you read this while I ask you at least part of it. Um, and part of it is that, you know, in terms of traditional ways to make a vaccine where you sort of, you know, take the antigen or epitope and then combine it into a vaccine, since you're identifying some of the epitopes, some of them are very hard to reach, but what's, what's to stop sort of using that sort of broad approach to maybe um, you know, develop a vaccine since we're identifying some of the potential neutralizing areas of the, vac of the virus? So the, the question here is what's preventing us from uh, using the attritional approach and, and using subcomponents of the virus as immunogens for a traditional vaccine. Uh, that was tried for a number of years, and I think the biggest, uh, um, the biggest barrier here is that um, HIV is a virus that has learned to persist in man by masking its critical epitopes. And we haven't learned how to make a vaccine that holds itself together in a way that those critical epitopes are exposed to cause an immune response in an uninfected person yet. Uh, there are a lot of other vaccines that we've made with just small segments of, of protein uh, or glycoprotein uh, or virus-like particles. HIV is one, though, that um, uh, uh, you could argue that because of its long-term um, uh, ability to live within people, within primates. These viruses have spent a long time figuring out how to evade immune responses, where a lot of the other viruses kind of come and go like polio, uh, haven't had that opportunity to, uh, to adapt and to the immune response uh, on an ongoing way to get to the point that they can persist in the presence of what should otherwise be a very good immune response. Next question is what about transplants instead of conditioning the immune system to make antibodies against traditional vaccines? Um, you're talking, I think, about using um, stem cells that make antibodies and then transplanting those into someone. Good idea. Again, you'd have to make sure that, the, um, that you were having those cells make the right an uh, antibodies uh, and that they were, uh, they were uh, HLA compatible so that they would stay in place. If you had to immunosuppress a patient to keep them in place, whether they make antibodies or not is not clear. Uh, but it's, it's certainly uh, these are the novel ideas that people are beginning to think about. What's my sense of interest in the community on developing a vaccine? Seems like there was only one presentation at Cory about the long-term antibodies from citation in my, in my presentation. Um, you know, I think, I, I can't speak for the community. I think uh, as, a, um, uh, as a member of the community of man uh, and, and woman, um, I would love to see an AIDS vaccine. Uh, if you're HIV infected at this point, an AIDS vaccine may not help you, but it may end the epidemic. Uh, an HIV vaccine may be useful therapeutically. I think we should all support AIDS vaccine development. Uh, I think the reason there weren't a lot of presentations about it is that there weren't a lot of great breakthroughs. And what uh, Michelle Nissenweig did, which I thought was quite useful, was to pull together uh, data from the last several years to help us better get our arms around what the neutralizing antibody response uh, progress has been. Uh, the large vaccine trials that um, that are that are designed to show efficacy can only be done every three or four years because they are massive now. And they've gotten bigger because we want to do them in the context of best available prevention approaches. You wouldn't want to do a vaccine trial that didn't offer people PrEP if they wanted it. And so the more, um, uh, the more um, uh, we drive down HIV acquisition uh, in the population we're testing vaccines in, 
the bigger the ask is every time you want to start a new vaccine trial. So it's going to be slow going, I think, to get to a therapeutic efficacy vaccine trial demonstrated on a population basis. So if there are no more questions, I'm just going to ask one that's unanswerable probably. And so what do you think will happen in CROI 2020? Uh, do you think we will have an update on the uh, 2030 uh, goal? Uh, what do you expect to see in the next year vis-a-vis uh, -vis your these uh, areas of concern? Well, we'll be 9% closer to 2030. Uh, the, uh, now, I do hope we see uh, more investment in rolling out PrEP and more uh, novel ways of getting PrEP to people that uh, can be done uh, so that you don't disrupt your life to get it. You know, you don't want to have to have somebody make a three-hour appointment to go wait in line at a doctor's office and pay $100 to have somebody write a prescription that costs $1,000. Uh, when what would be great would be have prep clinics that are available uh, away from work in places that people can drop in and get treated and, and set up more streamlined approaches to deal with some of the issues that you'll be talking about later uh, in terms of monitoring people who are on prep. But um, I hope we make progress with prep. Uh, we can do it. It's going to require uh, one of the things that Tony Fauci uh, pointed out is that prep is now given an A1 rating by the public health service, so it should be covered by insurance companies. Uh, I hope we still have insurance companies in 2020. <laughs> Uh, but um, uh, a lot of this is going to depend on what we do as a society more so than what we do with science. We know the science, and uh, I hope we can push uh, our, um, our government, um, uh, the two main driving branches, the legislative branch and the, um, and the, um, and the uh, executive branch, to follow the roadmap that was laid out in this plan, uh, because it will move us in the right direction. Great, and so those comments were both an ad for the follow-up after the break as well as the uh, uh, session after lunch because I think both sessions uh, with uh, panels will help address sort of the importance of what we've heard about. So I want to thank Chip Schooley for this excellent talk. And um, I think we just have a couple of uh, um, audience response questions to close up, and then you're off for a break. And we reconvene at uh, 11.05. So with that, if you could uh, respond to the first, to the next question about if, you're, uh, if you are still working, what is your current work? What is the primary care setting uh, in which you are now um, uh, working? If you're running for president, you're not working. So uh, I guess that would be other. <laughs> okay, so 10% um, uh, clinical research um, and 3% um, uh, and, uh, in corrections. And again, so I think that this audience represents really a broad um, spectrum of how we uh, have, do now, and in the future need to deal uh, with HIV, both treatment and prevention. And so uh, we do have some fellows in um, infectious diseases and HIV um, uh, programs, if they could stand, if they're here, just to acknowledge the work set out for them. Okay. And I think that that, oh. So one more question, I think. How many, more, how many patients with HIV do you personally manage at the present time? Um, and now there is a, a response for those who are retired.
Great. So, um, forty uh, percent uh, deal, you know, manage or help manage one hundred to three hundred patients. So it's an experienced group with a lot of responsibility. But again, um, I think we have responsibilities not only for those that we manage, but also to our peers and colleagues who don't manage HIV patients to help in the prevention strategies. And you are all experts um, in that area as well. Um, and so if you would just um, answer the following question in your own estimate about what your, um, how you place yourself in terms of experience with HIV um, as you come into this meeting. So a majority, over half of you do consider yourself HIV specialists, and I think that this is an advanced course um, and really, you know, plays on your own uh, knowledge. And so even though 14% um, say you have very limited experience, the fact that you're here, uh, we expect to see that change by the end of the day and applaud your being here as part of this course. So that is the last question, I believe. Is that true? Yes. Great. Okay, so we're off to a break now, uh, and we'll plan to reconvene again at uh, 11.05. Thank you very much for this morning's participation and our speakers.